tonight. You may be seated. I want to talk tonight about uh, the series uh, that we have been discussing, uh, that God has been talking to us uh, about uh, these last couple of weeks. And let your light shine. Turn to, turn to two or three and just tell them, let your light shine. Let your light shine. Let your light shine. Now, I, I, I want to be very clear and I want to be very plain with this because I, I want you to uh, uh, truly understand uh, what's, what's happening here in the church. I, I want to impress into the hearts and minds of everyone that calls this your home church that God is truly speaking to us. Hear me now. God is truly speaking to us. He wants us to walk in everything that he has promised us. Okay? He wants us to walk in those things. He wants us to accomplish those things. He wants us to see those things. And so it is imperative. I, I cannot stress this enough that uh, it... Uh, it should be this way all the time, but specifically now, it's imperative that we do not have an attitude of just church as usual, okay? We, we must uh, not be content to just go through the motions, all right? It cannot just be another Thursday. It cannot just be another Sunday. It cannot just be another service or another message, but we have to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to this local congregation. We've got to hear what the Spirit is saying. We've got to plug into what the Spirit is saying. We've got to listen. We've got to be obedient. We've got to be submitted. We've got to know what He's saying. We've got to be faithful. We've got to be here because the Holy Ghost is talking to us now. And he's trying to take us somewhere we've never been before. And how many know the only way we get there is through his word, through revelation. And so this is what is happening. I believe God is giving us revelation. He is giving us understanding. And so we must hear this direction. and We must hear this instruction. We've got to hear it. And we've got to be obedient to the commands that he's, that he's speaking to us. The best way, and I, I tried to explain this uh, thank you for those that came out for our Tuesday prayer. We had a, just a powerful prayer meeting. Amen. The Lord uh, was here, and and uh, we just it was, it was just an amazing time. Thank you for those uh, that 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 showed up. And um, but the best way I can describe what God is doing is is like um, if 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 I was out, let's say I was taking a hike with one of my kids or something, and I let's say I saw. I don't know, an eagle or something up in a tree. But because of the trees and that were all around, you had to be standing in a very specific spot. You had to be positioned in a very specific spot in order to see this thing. Does that make sense? And so what I would do with my child, because they couldn't see it from the position they were at. And so what I would do is I would take them by the shoulders and I would begin to move them to try to position them in the place to see what I wanted them to see. But because they don't know where I'm trying to position them, they're kind of like, right? They don't know where I'm trying to take them. And so there's resistance, not because they're resisting me. They just don't know where I'm going with them, okay? And so you have to take them and you kind of have to physically, nope, here, here, a little more, a little more. 
right? And so you can position them in the place, and then you, now you can see it from this place. And this is what I feel the Holy Ghost is doing to us as a church. The best way I can describe it, this word position is something these last week or so has been so prevalent in my prayer, my daily prayer, my study. I feel the, the voice of God. I, I hear the voice of God very emphatically speaking to me, to speak to you, that he is trying to position us to see what he wants us to see. He is trying to position us to see what has been promised to us so that we don't just shout about stuff but never see it. I don't want to just shout about stuff. I want to see it. I don't want to just say, yeah, that's for us, but never actually walk in it. I want to walk in it. I want to see it. I want to accomplish it. I want to see everything God has promised, and this is God. God is telling us, and I want you to see it, but I got to position you because you can't see it where you are. You got to allow me to position you. Be submitted to the positioning process in order to see what I want you to see. So this is what the Holy Ghost is trying to do. And so I'm just going to ask, and, and, and I know probably everybody will raise your hand, but God sees the heart. I'm going to ask and just encourage, in fact, don't even raise your hand. I want to encourage everybody in the room, do your best to get plugged in like you've never been plugged in before. Do your best to be faithful like you've never been faithful before. To be submitted like you've never been submitted before. What if this is, and I believe, the greatest day this church has ever seen? The greatest revival we've ever seen. The greatest harvest we've ever seen. Not just throwing things out so people will say, man, and yeah. No, no, no. For real. That this is it. That this is our day. That this is our moment. Oh, hallelujah. You see, we have to, I'm not even on my notes now, but we, we, have, to, we have to guard especially some of us that have been in church a while. We have to guard that mentality and that thought process that says, well, I've heard that before. I've heard that before. Revival's coming, harvest is coming. I've heard that before. Well, what if the problem has been not that it wasn't coming, what if the problem had been is we weren't willing to position ourselves? That it absolutely was the will of God for revival and harvest to happen. But because of our thinking was improper, we did not allow him to position us to see what he wanted us to see. Hallelujah. And so it's, it's so important right now, this day, this time, this moment in our church's history, it is so important that we're praying like never before, sensitive to the things of God like never before, unified like never before, on fire for God like never before, passionate for the things of God, faithful to the things of God like never before. Oh, hallelujah. Somebody said amen. Does anybody believe this? Does anybody want this? Hallelujah. So he's desiring, he's desiring to position us, position us. So quickly, I, I just wanted to recap just a little bit from last week and then we'll move forward. I've got a few things to say and I'm going to try to do so in an appropriate amount of time. As we talked this past Thursday, if we're going to hear the voice of God leading us, I mean, no, we're going to have to be sensitive to that voice. He speaks in a, in a still small voice. We've got to be sensitive 
to the still, small voice of God. Amen. Again, this isn't in my notes, but I talked about this on Tuesday. It is, it is impossible, and it's going to get quiet and weird right now, but it's all right. I'm helping us. It is impossible to hear the still, small voice of God if we're watching all kinds of movies, binge-watching television shows, spending hours and hours and hours on social media and YouTube and on and on and on. It is impossible to feed ourselves with so much of that noise and still be very acutely aware of the voice of God. You can't do it. It's impossible to do. So this is another thing I would encourage us, all of us in this house, if we want to see this, if we want to personally be positioned where God wants us to be, we've got to hear his voice. And if we want to hear his voice, then we must be willing to do what needs to be done in order to be able to hear his voice. And so that means where we have to make some decisions. I'm going to stop watching this. I'm going to cut back on this. I'm going to set some limits on this. Why? Not because it's necessarily wrong. I hope we're not watching wrong things. But even just the time, just the time and just the noise and the the voices of a carnal world speaking to us, that if we would become willing to say, you know what, I want to hear the voice of God more than I want to watch another movie. I want to hear the voice of God more than I want to watch this show. I want to watch the voice of God or hear the voice. We, we've had people, you know, I, I don't understand it. At some point I'm going to have to get to my notes. But uh, I, I don't understand it. We, we, we would have people throughout the years of pastor, we would have people that wouldn't come on Thursday nights because that's when their favorite show was on. I just don't understand that. I just don't get that. And so we have, to, we have to become sensitive. We have to become willing to do whatever we have to do in order to know I am in tune with the voice of God. That all I have to have is just a still, small voice, just a whisper, just a, and I know what he's doing, and I know what he's saying, and I know where he's leading me, and I know where he's guiding me, and I know where he's directing me. Amen? Oh, Hallelujah. And so we understand that we've got to be sensitive to his voice. That's, this is only going to be brought about because we become intentional about our relationship with Jesus Christ. That we want more of him than we want the things of the world. We want more of him than we want all the entertainment of the world. For again, it's this real relationship with, Lord, with the Lord that's going to produce this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one towards another and towards all men, even as we do towards you. So I think we asked the question last week, but I think it would bear repeating. How many would just be transparent enough to admit the fact that if we truly loved those in the world as Christ loved them, we would be doing much more in the area of personal evangelism? Could we all just agree with that? Even though it stings a little bit, even though we might not be at that point yet, which we're probably not, 
I think we could all just agree that if we love the lost the way Christ wants us to love the lost, we would probably be doing more in this area of personal evangelism than what we're doing. We can all agree with that? And so we're not saying that to beat anybody up. We're not saying that to, to, to criticize. We're saying that so that we would recognize, okay, this is an area I need to work on. So how do we increase in this love? The Lord tells us. This verse tells us. The Word of God tells us. It's telling us that God can make us have this love towards all men. That's what it says. To make speaks of spending time on something. If you're going to make something, you're going to spend time on it. It speaks of working on something. It speaks of time spent in the presence of the one doing the making. So what that lets us know is that if we want to love the world greater so that we would then increase our reach towards them, that can absolutely happen. Our love towards the world can absolutely increase. You know how it increases? Because we get a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how it increases. It doesn't happen because we drive around the neighborhood and look at people and see their lostness and on and on. No, it happens because we get a relationship with Jesus Christ. We spend time with the one who will make us have that love. Not as in forcing us, but as in bringing out of us and exemplifying to us and modeling to us. How many know when you get close to him, you hear his heart? The closer you get to him, the more sensitive you become to what he loves. And the more you get to know him, the more you want to love what he loves and hate what he hates. So it's all about relationship. That when we get close to him, we'll begin to love what he loves. And what does he love? He loves lost people. Oh, hallelujah. So it's about relationship. With Jesus Christ. The book would tell us that the Lord would make us to abound in love towards others. And then it says this, Matthew chapter 4 verse 19. Just quickly recapping. And he saith unto them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. When it speaks of them being fishers of men, it's speaking of them involving themselves in the harvest. Gathering souls into the kingdom like they used to gather fish into the nets. But I want you to see that Jesus told them that if you, will f <coughs> if you will follow me, what is that? Relationship. Relationship. He said, if you'll follow me, he said, I will make you fishers of men. <coughs> to make, again, to construct, to form, to fashion, to make ready, to prepare. And so if we'll follow him, if we'll have relationship with him, he said, I can make you a fisher of men. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. So all of these questions we have, <coughs> all of these questions we have for why we can't do it and why we can't be a, a soul winner and why we can't teach and why we can't do it, and we've got all these lists of excuses, the Lord said, no, 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 no. If you'll just have a relationship with me, I'll make you what you need to be in order to win your world. 
Oh, hallelujah. And here's the thing. We don't have the relationship so that we can win the world. We have the relationship because we love him. That's why we have the relationship because we love him and we want to get closer to him. We want to know him that I may know him. That's why we have a relationship. But in the pursuit of him, a byproduct of that pursuit is that he says, I can make you a fisher of men. I can make you. I can expound to you. I can explain to you. I can give you revelation and understanding of what you need to do in order to be effective evangelists for the kingdom of God. Oh, hallelujah. Does that make sense? So, that was just a bit of a recap. <clears throat> but we see that we have to be intentional. Everybody say intentional. How many know, you know, especially if you're married, you had to be intentional about your relationship. At least you should be. Whether it was in the dating process or even after you got married, you have to be intentional about your relationship. How many know that's where marriages fall apart? People aren't intentional about things. And so we have to be intentional as it applies to our relationship with Jesus Christ. That doesn't just mean, so what does that mean? It means we're going to set a time to pray. Right? Oh, hallelujah. We're going to set a time to pray. And that means that we may have to be intentional about going to bed earlier. Right? You know, the, the, the Bible talks about how we are to be disciples. But a form of that word disciples is discipline. To be disciplined. Disciplined to follow after him. Disciplined to have a relationship with him. That we can't just, again, I don't know why I keep going back to movies, but here we are again. We can't stay up till midnight, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning watching all kinds of stuff. You're probably not going to get up at 6 o'clock for prayer. We got to be disciplined. We got to discipline ourselves. Intentional, intentional, intentional. Okay, so now we're moving. Plenty of time. I turn your attention to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1. I just got into this chapter and, and I, just, I just could not could not get out of it in regards to tonight's study. Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of that guy. And it came to pass in the month of, <laughs> in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And Nehemiah, so he, some of his, I don't think it was his actual brother, it was just uh, the Israelite family as a whole. And so this Judah comes and certain others. And, and Nehemiah, he said, And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity. They had been taken into bondage, but not all of them. Some of them had escaped, and they were, they were living now and in and around this Jerusalem. But it says, so I asked about these and that were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem, the city itself. I wanted to know what, what did the city look like. 
And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and in reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. So now watch. I just kind of need your minds here tonight as we kind of go through this story and I believe God's going to speak to us. So here we find that this godly man by the name of Nehemiah has heard. He's heard about the city of Jerusalem, the city of, that was intended for God's people. He's heard now that this, this great, once great city has now been broken down. The city that he loved was not at all in the condition that it was intended to be in. The city that he loved didn't look at all like what God intended for it to look like. The walls of this once glorious city have now been broken down and the gates have all been burned with fire. That, that which should have been there, walls and gates, that which should have been there to protect that city from the attacks of the enemy were no longer up. They were no longer in place. They were no longer a stronghold. They were now no longer in their proper place. And because of that, the people of the city are described as being decimated. They are described as being in great affliction. They are described as being in reproach. My question to us tonight is this. Does that sound like any cities that you and I know of? No, they might not have actual walls and actual gates, but cities that sin and darkness and evil intent have broken down. Cities that do not have a standard, they do not have a guard, they do not have a spiritual force, they do not have a church to hold back the onslaught of hell's intentions and the enemy's advancements. People living in these cities who have been brought so low by that which sin has stolen from them and destroyed in them. People, people who could very well be described as living in affliction and reproach. These descriptions describe perfectly the cities that you and I live in, the people that you and I pass every day. Am I right about it? And so here was Nehemiah, and he gets this dark news of the destruction of the city and the tearing down of the people. And what was his response? What was his response? For I believe that the Lord would want his response to be what our response is. His response was this, Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 4. And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and I wept. I sat down and I wept immediately on hearing these words. Now, at the end of this chapter, we learned that Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. He was the butler to the king. He served in the king's house, the king's palace. And yet here we see that when Nehemiah heard of the brokenness of the city, when Nehemiah heard of the lostness, the darkness of the city, when he heard of the despair of the scattered people, the afflicted people of that land, the Bible says that he sat down. In other words, he no longer was content to perform the ministry 
in the palace. Stay with me now. He was too affected by the lostness of those people who were outside of the palace to content himself in that which he was doing in the palace. So he just sat down. All he could do, he probably should have been doing other things in the palace, could have been doing other things in the palace, but he just sat down. He could have been serving in the palace in some other form or fashion, but he sat down and he wept because he was so greatly concerned by the despair of those people outside the palace. It wasn't that what he was doing in the palace was wrong. It wasn't that what he was doing in the palace was bad. It was a good thing what he was doing. It was just that he knew that if he simply continued doing what he was doing in the palace, that he had this understanding that that would never accomplish what needed to be accomplished in the city of Jerusalem. Am I making any sense right now? Being a butler in the palace does not rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Bringing the drink to the king does not bring hope to those that are hopeless. Working in the splendor of the palace gardens does nothing to alleviate the darkness that has invaded this city. Hear me, precious saints of God, I am so thankful and please don't say I'm saying something I'm not. I am so very thankful for every one of us who perform ministry service in the building. I'm thankful for all of the volunteers, those that volunteer your time, sacrifice your days. Ladies came today and set up and served and cleaned up and were here for hours, could have been doing other things. I'm so thankful for individuals that serve in this house in some form or fashion, teachers and leaders and singers and musicians and ushers and greeters and on and on and on the list goes. But the Holy Ghost is speaking to us about having such a spiritual reaction to the lostness of our world that we have to stop being satisfied with what we're doing in the house. Because we know that what we're doing in here It's not affecting people out there. Help us, Holy Ghost. What we're doing in here is good. What we're doing in here is meaningful. What we're doing in here is valid. It has purpose. It has significance. Great, eternal significance to the people that are here. But it has no eternal significance to those out there. But oh, what would happen if we would respond to the lostness, the darkness, the brokenness of our worlds like Nehemiah where we could get to the place that says I'm thankful for my ministry in the palace. I'm thankful for what I do in the king's house. I'm thankful for my ministry, my anointing. I'm thankful for my position that what I do there and I'll keep doing that. But there's something within me that says it's not enough. It's not enough. I got to stop being content just doing what I'm doing in the Father's house, in the King's house. 
I got to stop contenting myself and saying I'm doing all that I can do for the harvest because of the position that I stand in an hour on a Sunday. No, we got to get to the place where we stop, where we stop and we fall and we have such an encounter and such an understanding and we are so moved. So moved by the lostness of our world that volunteering to usher is not enough for us because we know that just ushering isn't going to save my friend who is going to hell. We've got to have such an awakening. We've got to have such a reaction to the lostness and the darkness and the brokenness of our world where I understand as the pastor that my preaching behind this pulpit does nothing to help my neighbor who is lost because she doesn't hear it. They don't hear the messages that I preach. Doing God's work in the church building is great. It's needful. It's necessary for those that are here. But what about the people that aren't here? Come on, Jesus. I need us. I need us as a church. I need us as a church to not just think, oh, this is another message on souls. We've heard many. I need us as a church to get to a place where we begin to have the same reaction to the brokenness of our world like Nehemiah had. So it was. So it was. That Nehemiah has this realization We must have that kind of understanding. If we're good, this is the positioning that I'm talking about. This is the positioning that I'm talking about. We have got to have that kind of encounter at some point in our Christian walk with God, or else we will never see what He wants us to see. We have to get to a place where our ministry becomes more about what we're doing out there than what we're doing in here. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. I believe one of the biggest lies we are believing from the enemy as apostolic believers is that we are doing what we've been called to do because we're doing something in the house. It's quiet right now. And so God is trying to position us. But how many know in order to get where God wants us to go, we've got to be willing to leave where we are. And how many know sometimes we don't want to leave where we are? It's comfortable where we are. I like feeling that, you know what, my playing, my singing, my volunteering, I like feeling that those are the things I'm supposed to do for harvest. I like feeling that way. It makes me feel good like I'm doing what I've been called to do. When in reality, that's not all what we've been called to do. That's what we've been called to do in this context. But what have we been called to do in that context? Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. So Nehemiah has this realization that if 
that which is broken is going to get fixed, then he's going to have to become willing to go where that broken thing is. It it takes us back to what we've been talking about. How many know we can shout all day long about fixing the brokenness of our world? But if we don't ever go to where the broken people are, there's going to stay broken. We can shout about it and high-five one another and clap, you know, and pat one another on the back all day long. But if we don't ever go to where the broken people are, they're going to stay broken. But here's what I want us to understand and see. So he hears this news. He hears this news. It's broken down. The walls are broken down. It's horrible. It's bad. Despair. And he realizes, I I, want to do something. I, I feel God prompting me. I'm moved by this. But I want you to understand that he does not just hear this sad news and then grab his coat, jump on his horse, and get there. The Bible says that, watch what it says, Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 4. And it came to pass when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept, and I mourned several days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So he hears the news, he is affected, we're going to talk about it in a minute, but he is affected emotionally by this news, he's sad, he mourns this reality, but then he says, I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray about this thing. Now, what we have to know about Nehemiah's prayer, when it says that he prayed, is that he was not moved to pray one time about this terrible tragedy, this broken down land. He was not moved to just pray one time about it. But what we know from reading this chapter as well as the next chapter, and I'll probably explain it to you a little bit more clearly in just a few moments, but what we know about from reading this chapter and the next chapter is that he prayed about this thing for four months. Four months he prayed. So I want you to understand his initial prayers, think with me, his initial prayers were brought about because of his emotional connection with the city and the people. Those were his family members. Those were his brothers. Those were his sisters. That was his city. That was his land. He had such emotional ties to the people, to the city, to the walls. That is what prompted him initially to pray. But then his prayers continued. Four months he prayed. His continual prayers proved that this was more than mere emotion. Amen. A lot of distractions here tonight. A lot of distractions. Let's try to work on that, can we? God's trying to talk to us now. His initial prayers were brought about by his emotional connection with the city and its people. But his continual prayers proved that this was more than just emotion. Oh, hallelujah. His continual prayers truly showed 
that he had a sincere burden to be used by God to bring about real change in the life of that city. Saints of God, what we pray about is very indicative of what's in our hearts. How many times have we prayed out of emotion for the lostness of those around us only to then stop praying about it after about two days? Not for sure why it's so quiet tonight. But how many has that happened to? You've heard a message about the lostness of our worlds. You've heard a message about people going to hell. Heard a message about God prompting you and wanting to use you. And so what do we do? We pray about it. We're moved by emotion to pray about it. But then the question is, is how long do we keep praying about it? We're moved to pray after we hear a message about the lost and we hear a testimony of someone who did something great in the kingdom of God. We're, we're moved to pray after we read something about how somebody was used greatly by the kingdom or by the, by the Lord in the kingdom of God. But how long does that prayer last? How long do we continue praying about those things? How long do we persist in our communication with God about our responsibility to a lost world? How long do we keep praying about it? Or do we just pray about it after the message in order to make ourselves feel good and then forget all about it the next day? I would venture to say, and I'm preaching to myself more than anybody in the room, I know this is hard tonight, I would venture to say that if we don't have a real relationship with the Lord, that our prayers about these matters probably don't last very long at all. So I want to encourage us as a people. We had these prayer points the other night, and this was one of them. But we need to make this a matter of prayer every day. Every day. We need to make this a matter of prayer about my personal responsibility to the lostness of our world. We need to make this a matter of prayer every single day. We need to allow the lostness of this world to move us past emotion. Past emotion. Past emotion to the point where we can understand what is my role in the salvation of mankind. I want you to see this now. The book of Revelation would record, it would record what was most dear to the Babylonian people, the ungodly Babylonian people. These are the things they cried after. These are the things they sought after. These were the things that they truly desired to have in their lives and obtain in their lives. The Bible lists this. And here's the list, Revelation chapter 18 and verse 11. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. The merchandise 
of gold, silver, precious stones. These are the things that they sought after, they wanted, they desired. Merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones, pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet, scarlet and all thine wood and all manner vessels of ivory and all manner vessels of most precious wood and of brass and of iron and of marble and cinnamon and odors and ointment and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. Notice, the souls of men were dead last in that which concerned them, that which motivated them, that which they held dear, that which they were passionate after, that which they wanted. The souls of men were after horses, beasts, and sheep, and slaves. And I would ask all of us in the room, to search our prayer times, to search our prayer lists, to search our prayer requests and see how far down the souls of men ranks on our list. Do we pray about our finances more than we do the souls of men? Do we pray about a bigger this and a nicer that more than we do the souls of men? Do we pray about advancements and accomplishments more than we do the souls of men and our place in the salvation of those souls? So God has been speaking to this wonderful church, this great and glorious church, and he's truly trying to position us in that place where we are moved to pray regularly for the lost souls of mankind. And not just praying for them, We've talked all enough about this. You know what the word of the Lord says. Not just praying that God will save them, but praying for our role in their salvation. What is my role? And so here's the thing, and this leads us to our next point. Our initial prayer about the lost. The initial prayer is, is brought about by our emotional response to those who are unsaved. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should be emotional when it comes to the lostness of our world. But our continued prayer will give us, hear me now, will give us a God-given plan for how to reach them. If you're serious about being a soul winner, please listen to me right now. For it was Nehemiah's continual prayer that led him to the place where he could say these words. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 12. And I arose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Notice, notice now. God had given Nehemiah some very specific plans for what he wanted him to accomplish in that broken down city in order to bring it to life once again. He gave him very specific plans. And what was the plans? What was the plans that God put into his heart 
after his willingness to not just pray out of emotion, but to continue praying. Here it is, Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1. And it came to pass in the month Nisan. Now, that's how we know it was four months because Nehemiah chapter 1 tells us the month that the word came to him about the destruction and Nehemiah chapter 2 tells us what month it is now. And it was four months in between. And so he has been praying for four months. And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine, and I gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sat in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? And so Nehemiah said, I've never had my countenance sad in the presence of the king. But on this particular day, it was sad. And the king asked him, he said, why, why, why are you sad? I don't think you're sick, so why, why are you so distraught? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then Nehemiah said, then I was sore afraid. And I said unto, because he, he was afraid because, of he knew, because he knew what he was about to do. He was about to put the plan into action that God had been downloading into his life the last four months. And he said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lieth in waste and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, for what dost thou make request? What is your request of me? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I, and that wasn't an outward prayer because he's having a conversation with the king. That was an inward prayer. It was like, okay, God, here we go. I'm about to put it in place. You've been telling me what to do for four months, and here it goes. And I said unto the king, if it please the king, and if thy servant hath found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, for how long shall thy journey be? And will, will, will thou return? And those were answers that he had. How long is your journey going to be? When are you leaving? When are you coming back? These were things that God had already talked to him about. He answers the king. How long shall the journey be and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I set him a time. I already knew ahead of time because God told me. Because I prayed about the thing. Moreover, I said unto the king, if it pleased the king... Let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. And also, king, let there be a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace which appertain to the house and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. You see this? In those four months of praying, God had spoke to Nehemiah about him, first off, about him being the one 
that was going to lead this restoration project. How I many know sometimes we can pray about something and, you know, God sends somebody. When it's out of emotion, when it's just emotion, how I many know we don't want to have too much skin in the game? If it's just emotion, let somebody else make the sacrifice. But it went beyond emotion and he began to pray those months after month after month after month. And in those times, the Lord had spoke to him very clearly and said, no, 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 it's not somebody else that's supposed to go. It's you that's supposed to go. Not somebody else, Nehemiah, you. And then the Lord instructs him and says, during those times, he says, you're going to go before the king and the king is going to help you accomplish what I'm calling you to accomplish. How many know the Lord could have done this a hundred different ways. He could have used Nehemiah a hundred different ways, but he systematically spoke to him and said, you already have audience with the king as his cupbearer. We're going to do this route. And the Lord told him that when the king offered his assistance, that Nehemiah was to ask him to be released from this date until this date. I already know it. And then he was going to ask for letters with this precise wording to be sent to these precise governors to ask for their help. And then the Lord told him to reach out and also for the king to send a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so that he would help the cause by sending all of the necessary wood that they would need to rebuild. Do you see how specific this was? Do you see how specific? Do you see how clearly drawn out this plan was that God had given to Nehemiah? to reach his city. The point I want to make tonight is that in order for you and I to reach our worlds, we have to know what God wants us to do. We have to have specific instruction. We have to have specific understanding. We do not need to follow after the latest Christian fad. We do not need to go down to the Bible bookstore and look up, you know, there's nothing wrong, I guess, but just to go to there and look up their, the aisle of evangelism tactics and read all the different books and pick one of them. We need to have God give us the direction for what we are to do. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah, come on, Jesus, help us now. We may, and this, is, this may be part of our problem of why some of us are discouraged as it applies to personal evangelism. And because we're discouraged, we, don't longer, we no longer do it because it hasn't been working and we haven't been successful and we haven't seen any results from it and so we've just stopped doing it over the years. Could it be the reason why that is is because we've been trying to accomplish it with our own flesh, with our own mentality. I think this would be a good way to do it. I think this would be a good way to do it. I heard so-and-so did it like this. I heard this church did it like that. And so we try these things and we get frustrated because they're not working. We're trying things other people have done and it's not working and we get discouraged and we stop evangelizing. But the Holy Ghost is trying to show us, position us tonight. He's trying to give us instruction 
that if we will have a real relationship with him, a real relationship with him, and if the lostness of our worlds move us beyond emotion, if we will determine to continue to pray for the lostness of our world and our responsibility to it, then God will begin to give us a detailed plan where we're to go, who we are to meet with, who we are to text, who we are to call, when we are to call them, who we're to meet, where we're to meet them, what we're to say to them, what we're not supposed to say to them, how to approach them. He'll give us a very clear direction if we can listen to his voice. We don't need another program. We need to get to a place of anguish in prayer where we begin to feel about the lostness of our world the way Christ feels about the lostness of our world. And when we feel the lostness of our city the way he feels the lostness of our city, then and only then will he then begin to give us divine direction. This is what you do. This is where you go. This is who you call. This is what you say. This is where you walk. This is the restaurant you eat at. This is the table you sit at. This is where you get gas. You think I, do you think that sounds silly? It's not silly. The leading of the Holy Ghost. The prompting of the Holy Ghost. Where he gives us very direct, divine direction. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. And so I want us to see, and I'm hoping that we get this as a church, that we are seeing that everything that has hindered us in evangelism thus far can be pulled down. Every, everything, everybody say everything. Every excuse, every reason, everything we've always said. It's not my personality. If you get a relationship with him, he'll make you. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know where to go. If you have a relationship with him, he'll give you divine order, divine direction. So now it's just a matter of will we have a real relationship with Jesus Christ? Beyond Sundays, beyond Thursdays, will we have a real, fervent, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ? Now, I want to show you what he does next. Everybody okay? I want to show you what Nehemiah does next. For this is the true indicator of relationship with God. When he gives you divine direction and you're passionate to follow after that divine direction. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 12. So I arose in the night, I and some few men with me. Neither I told any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me save the beast I rode on. He said, I, I had no other, I had no other sustenance, or I had no other help for this great restoration of this entire city. All I had was 
what I was riding on. That was it. But how many know if you go, he'll supply what you need? Hallelujah. He said, we don't have any wood yet. We, we, don't have, we don't have any workers yet. They don't even know the plan yet. But because he went, that opened the door for everything else to follow. Oh, hallelujah. Verse 13, now watch this. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well. And I went to the dung port. And I viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Now quickly, I'm trying to come to a close. To a close. Dragon well is the only time it's mentioned in Scripture. There's differing opinions of what this actually was. Some say it was a dragon-like creature that was carved out of stone with its mouth open. And that is where the water would come out from this underground spring, this underground well. They constructed this serpent-like figure with an open mouth and the water would come out of that. But others say that it was just a normal well that because of it, the broken down nature of the city, it had all but dried up. It had been torn down and all kinds of stuff was in it. And so it's all, it was almost all dried up. And because of that, it was just kind of damp where this well used to be where water once flowed, now in its place, where water once was, now was a bunch of slithering snakes. So they called it the dragon well, the dragon, the snakes, the well filled with snakes. Very well could have been the very place where he was standing next to this well with slithering snakes all at the bottom, viewing the city from the dragon well. And then he viewed it the Bible says from the dung port, which was the sewer system that carried out all of the sewage from the city. How I many know that had to smell pretty bad? Filth all around, refuse from the city strewn all about him. And that was the next place that Nehemiah stood and viewed the city from. So here he was, just think with me. Here he, he sees, he views the city from two of the worst possible places you could view it. Two of the worst vantage points you could possibly have towards the city. It represented, these places represented the worst of the city, right? The city, the, these places represented the darkest places of an already dark city. And yet that's where Nehemiah viewed the city from. And it's what he said after viewing the city from those two despicable, dark, stinky places. Disgusting places. This is what he says. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 17. Then I said unto them, ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth in waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the walls of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach. Oh, hallelujah. Remember, now you got to remember this. He first felt this calling when he was in the pristine palace. But now he's walking next to snakes and now he's in sewage 
And guess what, Brother Tim? He still wants to accomplish what God called him to accomplish. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. He first got the notion, he first got the call, he first got the burden when he was in the pristine palace where everything was perfect and beautiful and everything was in its proper place. But then he's seen it in, in its, all of its ugliness. But here's the thing. Come on, Jesus. When you truly have a relationship with the Lord, it will give you such passion and it will give you such direction that you can look at a situation from the worst possible angles and still be supremely confident that the plan God gave you is going to work. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. This is why. This is why a relationship with him is so important if we're going to accomplish the work that he's called us to accomplish. For it is one thing to feel the tug, and you're going to agree with me now, I know it. It's one thing to, to feel the tug of evangelism when we're sitting on Pentecostal pews. It's one thing to feel the tug of evangelism when we're surrounded by Pentecostal people. But how many times have we abandoned the call when we get face to face with the messiness of a lost world? Therefore, if our call to win the lost is going to be able to be accomplished, we must get a relationship with the Lord like never before for longer than we've ever had before. Nehemiah, you never would have stuck it out if you had only prayed out of emotion. You got to the dragon well. You got to the dung pile. You got to the sewer. You would have ran. You would have wanted the pristine palace. You would have wanted the luxury. You, wanted all, you would have wanted all the comfort. But because you kept praying about it. Because you kept praying for souls. It moved you beyond emotion to direction. It gave you divine insight on what to do to accomplish it. And with that in divine insight came a passion that nothing could stop. No matter what it looked like, no matter how bad it looked like, no matter the sacrifice necessary, no matter what you had to give up to see it, doesn't matter. We will rebuild these walls. I will do something great for the glory of God. I will be a catalyst of revival for my friends and my family members. I will, I will start a community group. I will start a group home Bible study. I will. But what about this? It looks bad. It looks difficult. I know my personality might not be the most outgoing. I know I've never done anything like this before. I know how am I going to, God's talking to me about leading a group Bible study and I've never even taught one person a Bible study. I don't know. I don't seem like this is going to be effective. But here's what I do know. God spoke to me in prayer because I kept praying about this thing and I kept praying about this thing and I kept praying about my part in the harvest and it wasn't just the next day after pastor preached about the harvest. It was the next week and it was the next month and it was the month after that and because I was willing to continue to pray about it, the Lord spoke to me and it went far beyond
emotionalism and I prayed about it to the point that he gave me divine direction and with that divine direction it was so clear in my heart what I was supposed to do that I became willing to step out in faith like I had never stepped out in faith before to do what God has called me to do. Oh hallelujah. Oh hallelujah. Is God talking to anybody right now? Really? Is God talking to anybody right now? And I close, I close with this outcome. Nehemiah's burden of prayer, Nehemiah's burden of fasting, Nehemiah's burden, burden, his willingness to go do what God told him to do. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8 and verse 5. And Ezra, this is now in the city now. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, with lifting up their hands. This city that was dark, this city that was in ruins, these people who were wretched, these people who were broken down, these people who were defeated now had their hands raised, bowed their heads, worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 10, then he said unto them, go your way now. Service is done. Eat the fat, drink the sweet. Send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto the Lord. Neither be sorry. You were sorry. You were sorrowful. But you don't have to be sorrowful now. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. It was dark. It was desperate. It was horrible. But now, what do we find in the city? We find the joy of the Lord. It's no longer dark. It's no longer desperate. We now find the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, hold your peace, for this day is holy. Neither. You don't have to be grieved anymore. You don't have to be sorrowful anymore. You don't have to weep anymore. Those days have passed. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. These people that were scattered were now gathered together once again. These people who only knew uh, what sorrow was and what tears were were now being instructed to have the joy of the Holy Ghost. These people who thought it was over. These people who had nothing to live for. These people whose walls had crumbled down and gates had been burned. These these people who thought this is the way it's always going to look, this is the way it's always going to be, these same people were walking in a newness of life like they had never experienced prior to this day. So yes, there was a burden of prayer upon Nehemiah and yes, there was a burden of fasting that rested upon Nehemiah but then I got to tell you when that day came, there was joy. When that day came there was peace. When that day came there was laughter. When that day came there was rejoicing oh can I tell somebody that there is no, yes it's going to take prayer to lead somebody to Christ it's going to take fasting to get direction for what you're going to do to have an impact on your world and there's going to be some whole lonely days when it's just you and God praying and you get along with God and you're going to be burdened under the weight of the souls of men and there's going to be anguish of your mind and of your soul concerning your part in the harvest at 
least that's where God would want us to go. We will have those days. But with those days, with those days, they're going to produce a revival. And with those days, they're going to produce a harvest. And I'm here to tell you, you're not going to regret it when you see your friend and your family member repenting of their sins, being baptized in Jesus' name, being filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. The burden of prayer was worth it. The burden of fasting was worth it. The sorrow of our soul over the lostness of our world was worth it. Every sacrifice was worth it. Our relationship with God. Every day, every day, every day, I made myself go to bed early so I could get up early and have a relationship with God. Every time, every time others were going and doing things, and I said, I can't go with you because I got to spend time with God because I want to spend time with God. It will be worth it. When we're baptizing people left and right, when we're baptizing people every day of the week, when this place is being packed out and we got to add a second service, Come on, somebody. When we're starting campuses, when we're starting more community groups than we've ever started, when we're seeing people filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost in our community groups, I need somebody to believe me right now. I need somebody to have faith with your pastor right now that these are supposed to be new days, that God is wanting to elevate us, that that which we've always seen is not what he wants us to keep seeing, but he wants to open up the windows of heaven over us. He wants to rise us to newness of, re- of, of revival and newness of harvest. And in order to do that, he's trying to position us. And we may be fighting it a little bit because we don't know where we're going. But if we'll just allow the confrontation of God's word to get us positioned properly, it's going to cause us to see things we've never seen. Stand to your feet if you would. Stand, stand to your feet. Lift your hands, lift your voices, please. Can somebody just lift your voice, please? Oh, God, I love you, 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 Lord. Oh, God, I want to push beyond just my emotional response to the lostness of my world, and I want to pray about it every day. I want to pray about my role, my role. What is my role? What is my role? Amen. 